Welcome to the Movement Made Better podcast, powered by Stick Mobility. We are your hosts, Dennis Dunphy and Neil Valera. Today's guest, we have Coach Mike Ryan with us. Coach, we'll turn it over to you for a little introduction. Hello, guys. It's great to be here. I was flattered when you asked me to, to be a guest on your podcast. I've been a fan for a long time. Just to give you a little update of where I've been, what I've been doing. After 13 years, this past June, I resigned from Equinox to follow a passion to pursue a terminal degree, a PhD in performance psychology. And with the rigor of commuting to New York City, I did some reflection because I was flourishing during quarantine. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was taking in all these perspectives of overcoming resilience or overcoming adversity in the past, finding levels of resilience. And then you're presented in this situation where, you know, this is not so bad. I'm in my home. I'm with my family. Like, what can I do for myself and my family to make this situation better Mm -hmm. rather than what is happening to us? So it, it took the vulnerability out of it. And as I was home, I was making a living. I was coaching clients and academia was, I felt this passion to become a more advanced researcher. So then when New York City started opening again and I was going back to work, I realized that I was spending 1,000 hours a year on the train commuting from Long Island to New York City. And I started doing the math and I thought that's 25, 40 hour work weeks just to get to another work week. And I said, this is just not doable anymore. I was doing it for seven years. But yeah, I had to separate with uh, with the brand who I was very passionate about. I, I made some tremendous relationships there, uh, but I've moved on. I now, two months ago, I took a position with Form Life, which is, or Form, I should say, which is a, a virtual portal for health, wellness, fitness. Yeah, I don't want to compartmentalize it into just a fitness uh, opportunity, but it's best in fitness and home imaging. And there's this, this co- coaching portal between coach, client, no matter where they are. I mean, this is literally a new frontier in fitness. Mm-hmm. So I have a director role where I assist my learning and development team with curriculum development and a founding trainer for the brand. Outside of that, I'm a passionate goalie dad for my son's ice hockey team. We travel up and down the East Coast for his travel. And it's just been, it's been great to have this opportunity now to, my role is 100% remote. So dividing academia, my career and family time, catching up on an enormous amount of sleep has been oh, amazing. It's game changing. <laughs> so performance psychology, that sounds fascinating. Well, you know, I took a hiatus from school for a long time. I opened a powerhouse gym franchise several years ago, going back to uh, 2000. I was a competitive bodybuilder from 1989 to 2003, winning the MPC USA lightweight division in 1995 in Denver, Colorado. And so for a long time, I was bodybuilding, I was training clients, and then I went into business and there was an operational perspective there that kind of became a little bit overwhelming at times. We had 25,000 square feet. And my concentration and my focus had to go to the business. And I kind of got a little rusty and dormant with my training. And Mm -hmm. I just understood that I was starting to fall behind. So when I left that business, I was working full-time as a coach trainer, let's say trainer. Mm -hmm. I just thought to myself, one day I would like to go back to school, but it was on a bucket list, married, had a child, making ends meet. And I wasn't sure if it was really going to happen. Well, you know, sometimes life throws you a curveball. Mm-hmm. And marriage ended quite early. My son was a year old at the time. And then I went to Eat Rocks. And I, when I was working there, I just became surrounded 
with like-minded individuals who were constantly raising the bar to expand our knowledge in a humble way and to learn and stay on the, the, the curve or ahead of the curve, if you will, in health and wellness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so 10 years ago, we were looking at the benefits of, of recovery. Rather than overtraining, we were looking at like under recovery. Gotcha. And then I, I so this time came about uh, August of 2017. I said, you know, I'm, I'm a single dad. My son is becoming, you know, he was a, a late adolescent then and he had a level of independence. I didn't really have a primary romantic relationship in my life, mm-hmm. single guy at that point in time. I said, you know, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it now. Mm-hmm. So I opted in and I finished my master's degree in two years. And what the irony of that situation was that I did a lot of work on commuting to work on mm-hmm. the Long Island Railroad. Mm-hmm. And part of that was an inspiration when I went through the PN2 certification and this structure and system that I had every day during my commute about focusing on an academic goal, if you will. When PN ended, I'm like, what am I going to do with this? Like, I still have this time. I mean, I've read about a hundred books on those trains, but I still wanted to work for some type of level of, a, of an academic goal. So I went back to graduate school 22 years after I graduated undergrad. So when I got into kinesiology, uh, there was a dual concentration, kinesiology and coaching psychology. And I was really just enamored by how, and you guys know this well, how much fascia and movement is related to emotion. Mm, and, yeah. you know, so if you notice in, on, a, on the graduate level, many programs are coupling kinesiology and psychology together. They kind of mm. go hand in hand in this bundle of academic curriculum. Mm-hmm. Well, when I finished that in December of 19, I thought to myself, man, I still have this flow and I don't, I'm not prepared for it to end. So I applied, I went one semester, Gigi Pollock, who is with Institute of Motion, mm-hmm. yep, she yep. and I were classmates in graduate school. Oh, nice. She had, yeah, she had gone on to Concordia, Chicago for mm-hmm. health and human performance PhD studies. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I had originally negotiated some stuff with GCU, Grand Canyon University, for performance psychology. And then after speaking to Gigi, I'm like, you know what? Let me give this a shot. I was there for one one course, and I just felt like I let myself down. This was not my original game plan. The psychology component was really what I wanted to understand more as it relates to performance and movement. Mm -hmm. So I applied to GCU, got in there, and the day quarantine started. I, I started school that week. So my first seven months of graduate studies were during quarantine. And it, I was just like, this is remarkable. I love what I'm doing. It's, it just made, it's making me better. I'm better, better at being human since I've been going through and sorting through the research. So right now, my dissertation study, which was inspired by quarantine and COVID, believe it or not, mm-hmm. where every other business was like somehow compromised by COVID. I, fa- I feel like I'm making lemonade out of lemons during this process because it started to occur to me that how come some of my colleagues were struggling during that time, building business, sustaining business, mm-hmm. and other colleagues, including myself, we were flourishing. We, we were enjoying this process. There was this level of autonomy that I never experienced before, and it felt incredible. Mm-hmm. So I started thinking, I started researching this. And uh, as it's evolved now, my dissertation, dissertation studies are uh, the statement basically, or the problem statement is it's, and it's related to the research suggesting that there's high attrition rates in coaching relationships, regardless if somebody's financially committed to it. Mm. You know, you get high cancellation rates. Uh, there was an article that was built around precision nutrition level one. Mm. The women who finished that study made 
you know, considerable progress in their health and well-being. But yet still, it was close to 50% attrition and they were paid to do it. They had, you know, so I thought to myself, why? What is that? So I kept reaching deeper and deeper. So here I am now. um, And the study is surrounding meaning making, eudaimonia and sustainable coaching relationships in the virtual arena. So from a a performance standpoint, how do clients describe meaningful experiences, meaningful relationships that has them think to themselves, my coach, Dennis, my coach, Neil, my coach, Mike, like my day starts there. Mm -hmm. What I feel in that moment is like a vault for the rest of my day that cascades through my day, through my week. Overall, my blood pressure is down. I have positive mindsets. I'm more uh, attentive to my body's needs. I'm preventive with care rather than abusing my body at times and just relying on reactive care. Mm -hmm. Um, There's this cascade that comes and, you know, if we look through the lens of the biopsychosocial model, there's a theoretical model as well known as the psychological well-being scale. And it looks at six components where it's self-acceptance, purpose in life, autonomy, environmental mastery, personal growth, and positive relationships. And with this wheel, it's really what we do as coaches. And it, yeah. and it just, it, it almost seems elementary, although it's not, to make sure we're touching each spoke of those wheels, of the wheel, to ensure that the client is getting the true value beyond monetary mm-hmm. of what they hope to experience. That's where I'm at with this. And uh, I don't know if you'll free to ask any questions if I wasn't so, there. No, because that really lends credence to the fact that what we do is much more than the physical aspect. And I think a lot of people that get into this industry, that's all they think it is. But there is so much of the relationship that really delves into it. And it took me a long time to get around to realizing the psychological aspects of, even though one of my first instructors said, most of your job is psychology, Mm -hmm. right? But when you get, you hear it, but when you get into it, you don't really think, you know, whatever. But then as you have more experience in the industry, you're going, wow, it is so much psychological work. Yes. I told you, I I competed in bodybuilding for Mm -hmm. a long time. And I think back now to my 20s. I was just 50 this past, this past May. At 30 years ago, where aesthetic goals were all I thought about. Mm-hmm. And I know I'm not alone in that, at least in oh, my yeah. cohort back in the day, right? Oh, yeah. No. And I can honestly say the days that I won bodybuilding competitions mm-hmm. was, regardless how I looked on stage, I remember thinking to myself, I am as unhealthy as I can possibly be at any given moment right now. Now, I'm not discrediting. Yeah, sport yeah, at yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. I just know for that moment with the way the diet works and the ability to peak your body to be in top physical condition aesthetically, mm-hmm. right? It's it's yeah. it's it's quite strange to compare physiques, you know, mm-hmm. because your preference may be different than your preference. Very you know, true. it's very subjective. Yeah. So when I got out of that, and I think back now, I'm like, it's amazing how self-sacrifice I put through maybe relationships that I may have compromised for an aesthetic goal that at the end of the last decade, there was no meaning behind that anymore. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so Dennis, to your point, the psychological component, the connection of something greater than a short-term goal that is either driven, let's say extrinsic motivation mm-hmm. is the literature suggests that it is abundantly more fulfilling 
to be autonomous in intrinsically motivated goals, whatever that may be. And it usually is an offset or it's, it's, there's an association with overcoming challenge, finding resilience, and then that inspires more. Mm-hmm. So I, I believe you and I first met at EBFA's uh, little summit in New York yes. City. Yes, that's yes. Right. yes. Yep. I started studying the foot after my first hip replacement. And I remember how poor I felt physically and, and emotionally, psychologically from pain, from living through chronic pain. And uh, when I recovered or after the recovery of the surgery, I said, I need to look at the body differently. I need to understand that where, where I think it is, it ain't. <laughs> and I need to understand what's causing that structurally. And then that just kind of led into this whole other cascade of understanding human movement, appreciating how good it feels to move and what that does to inspire other motivations. I'll never squat 550 again. Not that I you know, wouldn't like to, but it's just, that's not the top of my goals anymore. Yeah. I want to be able to move well. I want to be able to move often, as they say with FMS. You know, mm-hmm. my son now is 14. I want to be a grandparent that is not afraid to do things with my grandchild in the next 10 years or, mm-hmm. or 15 years. Mm-hmm. I want to have a life of vitality. And this is kind of the way I, um, I structure programming around my clients. I'm not getting any younger. And as I'm getting older, the core group of clientele that I have are probably anywhere between six to 10 to 12. In one case, a gentleman just turned 90, my senior, you know? Mm -hmm. And these are the people that have put meaning back into my role. And it's my responsibility. I owe it to them to ensure that they have meaning throughout the day. So it's kind of come full circle. And the graduate study, I think, has just presented it into a nice, concise package that crosses domains Mm -hmm. and health and fitness, mobility, strength, stability is more than what the, you know, the the physical aspect would imply. So you just mentioned mobility and stability. I know perform better just did a little summit last about uh, last month or whatever, or the month Mm -hmm. before. And they said they had Michelle Dalcourt on and, and Sue Falzone and Lee Burton, and they asked, uh, what does stability and mobility mean to you? And, and what are, are they mutually exclusive of each other? What would you say in regards to that? No, I, I try not to speak in absolutes because there's, mm-hmm. there's a small percentage of things that are outliers, right? Mm-hmm. However, mobility and stability like live in that same, that same world, or that, that same domain, even though they're identifiably different, mm-hmm. they're interdependent on each other. And to have one in independence of the other is going to cause problems. Look at the, uh, the models like the joint by joint theory. And I think it was Gary Gray who said most ability, right? Yes, that they yep, go, yes. Yeah, they, there's a synthesis there. So, you know, and I was explaining to my son, he was saying uh, after one of, the, one of his games, he's like, dad, my low back is so stiff. I said, well, your low back, your lumbar spine is, is not a mobile area. You know, it should be stable. What you're feeling is muscular fatigue or strain in that area because something else wasn't mobile enough to accommodate the stability of that area. So you have this thing that's happening a little too much in an area that, in an area that shouldn't do too much. Mm-hmm. And, that, and that's the discomfort that you're feeling. So as elementary as I could explain it to him, but he totally understood it. And, you know, mm-hmm. Michelle always talks about the big three of like the big toe, the mm-hmm. hip, and the thoracic spine and how they move together and everything else just kind of moves around that vertical axis mm-hmm. 
with the complement of the mobile areas. So I, I think they cannot uh, exist in a silo of from one another. So since you've got your your hip replacement, how did that shift your your training? <laughs> That's funny. Um, so I have a bullet list of stuff. <laughs> Two thousand three, pec major tear. Okay. I could not have. I went to three orthopedics. Nobody wanted to operate on it because I didn't know to sell. So if you're going to tear your pec pec major, make sure you rupture it from the humerus so that they can put it back together rather than tearing it in the belly. And now it's just kind of oh. like chopped meat. Oh, damn. Yeah. So I have like a permanent divot here. Okay. Uh, that was 2003 or four. 2008, total rupture of the rotator cuff, open surgery, then pull it back in. 2010, rectus femoris and adductor magnus tear on the left leg. 2013, total hip replacement, left. 2017, total hip replacement, right. It was after the, the quad tear that I thought to myself, something's not right. Mm-hmm. Like I'm getting injured, but significant tears. Where before the age of 32, nothing. I, I had no major injuries. <laughs> yeah, right. So I, I started like going through this thing in my head, like what was consistent about these injuries? You know, and from a, a programming standpoint, it wasn't that it was careless training. It's like September of 2008, uh, 2004, again in the late summer, early fall for the shoulder. It's like September. And then the same thing with the quad was like October. And I started to recognize that hmm, seasonal allergies at the tail end of the summer, congestion, turn into sinus infections. 2003, Ooh. 2008, 2010, significant sinus infection that the doctor prescribes the Z-pack for you. Doesn't mm-hmm. work. Doc, I'm not feeling better after the four days, five days, whatever the Z-pack is. I'm going to give you something stronger for the infection. I'm going to put you on Leviquin for 10 days. Wow. In less than 48 hours, I can breathe. Yeah. But you know what? I tore my pec. I ruptured my shoulder and tore my quad and magnus. Mm. What is it about a sinus infection? It's not a sinus infection. What is it about the medication? Well, if you Google Leviquin or any antibiotic that's in the quinolones family, your computer will illuminate with class action suit on oh. tendon ruptures, Achilles tendon oh. tears, pec tears. Oh. So I was just like, oh my God. So I spoke to it and I was stuck in this abyss where I didn't have surgically repaired process to repair this. And then this happened after the label came out. So I wasn't eligible for the class suit, which at that time was so big, it was closed. Oh, shit. Yeah. So I know that was a long-winded response, but the hip inspired me to like say, like, what's going on? And to this day, I no longer take, I, I tell everybody, I, you know, any doctor, if I, I, I don't take Levaquin for any infection. If a client, this, this is why in, in coaching, we have to be so proactive with data intake, questionnaires, mm-hmm. uh, health histories, anything changes, even a state of readiness, five question little list prior to each question, uh, each session, just to understand like what's different from the last time I saw you. Sleep, nutrition, some type of sickness, medication, alcohol, whatever, those things are going to contribute to a change in what we see in behavior. So, you know, I I looked into this and I just had to revamp my training where I got to get out of the sagittal plane. Mm -hmm. I was spending so much time in the sagittal plane. You know, I could squat this, but ask me to lunge, boom, maybe I'm going to slightly like strain my groin or something like that. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, after meeting you and I just want to let you know, like when I went through FRC to hear mm-hmm. Dr. Spina actually, you know, call out stick mobility and what you do and what you have designed and what you have created was really like to hear him say that, you know, um, was, was indicative to me that, you know, I was on the right path because I had met you before that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 So yeah, these, these things were things that illuminated my movement and the way I train. Now, from a nutrition standpoint, you know, when you come out of surgery, you're going to have inflammation. It's part of healing. You don't want to expedite it too much, but nor do you want to add anything that's going to make it worse. Mm-hmm. So I remember thinking to myself after the hip replacement, you know, what? I'm going to come home. I'm going to eat proactively to heal. Mm-hmm. So for the first week, I'm going to try without dairy because I was convinced the dairy was giving me some, you know, just GI strains and stuff like that. Although I was never lactose intolerant, at least not diagnosed. A week goes by and I feel great. This is 2013. So I'm going to leave it out. Next week, I'm going to try gluten. Took the gluten out. I went back to work after six weeks. People asked me if I had lost like 15 pounds. I think I lost two pounds Mm. during the six-week recovery, but I had lost inflammation. Mm -hmm. So here we are, 2021. It's a good seven, eight years have not gone back to dairy and gluten. Just on my, I I know how good I feel without it. Mm -hmm. And- even more significant, I have not had a sinus infection since 2013. Oh, wow. When you think about dairy, like uh, we're the yeah. only species that continues to feed our young milk mm-hmm. beyond nursing years. And yeah. this kind of creeps me out a little bit. It's from another species. Yeah. It's a little odd. Yeah. It's a little <laughs> odd. But we add lots of sugar and salt to it and make it very tasty. <laughs> oh, That's yeah. the problem. Yeah. yeah. I, that's really what it comes down to, right? I mean, that's that's what we do, you know? Yeah. Well, you know, I always say in class, you know, when we teach course, humans are the only animal that bastardizes everything they're supposed to do. That's right. The, we're the only animal that does it. And by choice, too. I mean, we openly choose to do this stuff. And that's what's crazy. And then we got to sometimes just step back and go, does this make sense? Is this logical? You know, and then we want to see the studies that back that up. And so that's just who we are. You know, it's interesting, man. Both my kids, the first time they they tried milk, like cow's Mm -hmm. milk, Mm -hmm. they're like, you see their face. So we're like, all right, we don't need it. Yeah. So they don't drink it. They don't drink it at all. Just didn't agree with them. Yeah. 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 My mom, my parents used to make me drink milk. I Me never too. liked it. Well, because the whole thought is that strong you know, bones. Yeah, strong, strong bones. bones, right? Whereas if you eat enough, you know, greens, greens you get, you get worn yeah. better. Yes. Right? But that's just the generation for generations. That's just what we were taught, right? So we just pass that down from generation to generation. This is the old, this is the way we've done it. This is the way we'll continue to do a type of mentality. You know, Dennis, what you just said about taking a step back and considering what the habit or behavior is, un- and then you find yourself in these unfortunate circumstances, mm-hmm. whatever that mm-hmm. may be. Again, that comes right back down to performance psychology. It was Nick Winkleman who first kind of like introduced me to the writings of Daniel Kahneman and his thinking fast, thinking slow, where there's two systems of thought. And that first reactive thought process is very emotional. Wow. You kind of get blurred by common sense, you know, your common sense is, is kind of thwarted, but it takes strength. It takes training. It takes deliberate practice to notice and name what you're, what you're feeling, take a step back from it and say, 
if I do this, what are the consequences? And if I do it and suffer those consequences, I'm the only one to blame for it. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, a, it's a powerful thing. And again, this is part of the coaching model. Funny story, I had gone back to work last October, and I think it was like November. I was working on the east side of Manhattan. I had to get, go across town on the bus to get back to Penn Station. And I boarded the New York City bus uh, going through the park. Everyone's got masks on. And this woman was sitting across from me without a mask. She had her headphones in and she's talking. So I thought, okay, it's a little rude, but she's talking really loud on the phone. Well, I was responding to an email in transit when I was really like stunned. She had like leaped out of her seat and was trying to wrestle her phone out of my hand. And I mean, as I tell you now, it reminds me of like a Kirby enthusiasm. Episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, please don't touch my things. And I pull it out of her hand and she looks at me and she says, I've just encrypted your phone. I'm going to follow you and now I'm going to kill you. Oh, shit. <laughs> and everyone on the bus is like screaming. And at this time of day, there's a lot of seniors on the bus. Yeah. It's like three o'clock in the afternoon. And at, boom, it just hit me. I'm like, it, and this happened in like five seconds in my head. Obviously, she's not in the right mind. Yeah. I'm going to react to this get defensive. Maybe something physical happens. Next thing I know, there's cuffs on my hands. Pause. I just, yes. What's my goal? I want to go home. Yep. I want to get off this bus and go home. Everyone's like, call the police. And I'm just kind of, she got off the next stop. The bus driver removed her from the bus, but she was getting off anyway. And then everyone was like, you should have done this. I'm like, yeah. I don't want any fallout from this. It was not worth my time. And I, I'm relieved that nothing happened. Mm-hmm. So that was one of, I know it's almost like a humorous story in a bit, but it was tremendous. Uh, and I still, th- obviously it still resonates with me because 10 years ago, I don't know if I had the wherewithal to understand like, what am I about to do? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it worth it? I just want to get yeah. home, see my kid and, and, and relax tonight, you know? That is a big part because I, it's kind of weird, but it's kind of funny is I had a coach that was a state trooper in New York. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes he would take me to the depot where he worked out of and we would chat about, you know, his job. And my thing was always like, man, I will never go to jail. He's like, you sure about that? I said, yeah, because if a situation ever comes up, I'm literally going to tell myself it's not worth it because I don't want to end up in that place. Yes. And to this day, that's no matter if someone calls me out or something for wants to get into a fight. I'm like, no. It, no, I'm not. Why would I do that? Like, I have a career. Mm-hmm. I've got companies that I'm part of. I got better things to do. Right? Yeah. It wow. just, it, but it's that, it's that ability to step back and go, it's just not worth it. Agreed. Right. But yeah. it's like you said, though, it's, it wasn't worth the energy to, if you would call the police and this and that, it, it's just the outcome wouldn't have been anything that was worth it. Yeah. And I was already, you know, I explained to you the compromise of time that I was dealing with, you know, mm-hmm. the deprivation of like personal time and rest. And I, that was another thing that added to it. Do I really want this day to be any longer than it already is? Just even if I argue with her, I'm not going to, my point's not going to land. She's oh, absolutely yeah. not yeah. able to comprehend it. Yeah. Yeah. So th- these are some of the coaching conversations that I actually have with clients, you know, not necessarily with a threatening position with another human, but when you're faced with temptation at a, at a meal, uh, when you're trying to not have three or four drinks at dinner, 
from a behavioral standpoint, I remember saying to a guy, he's like, well, you're not there with me at dinner. And if I'm having, if I have to entertain a client, what, what do I do? I'm like, can you drink a little slower? I, I could, you know, just don't have to chug it. Um, maybe you have a cocktail before dinner and then you, you kind of like nurse that glass of wine throughout dinner. And I said, here's the thing, try this. I'm not there. Take a picture when you're tempted to order another, take a picture of your glass and send it to me. It doesn't come. But the next time we met, he said, you know, the very fact that I was going to have to figure out how to take a picture of my wine glass to send to you <laughs> and the other people at the table, and I want to be embarrassed doing it was just enough of an audit to slow my drinking down. Nice. So, you know, these subtle little coaching habits and behaviors that we could recommend, uh, whether it's around movement, whether it's around nourishment and nutrition, or even restorative behaviors, <sighs> just a little bit. Does some of your work get into the sports performance aspect with athletes? Sure, it would. Okay. It, I'm saying it's not, it's not limited. You know, performance psychology could... It, it can go from the way a child performs in school and has his sport. It could okay. be in the field of athleticism. It's whatever uh, the client is that I'm working with at that time is looking to enhance and uh, what enhance their ability in whatever that may be. You know, so some of the theoretical models that are at, at the root of this are like ABA organizational uh, management behaviors like what happens like in the culture of organizations, which is intended for groups, but at the same time, it starts with the individual. Mm -hmm. So if we're creating these habits and this individual, I'm feeling autonomy in my role and I'm sharing good stories with you rather than gloom and doom stories about what so-and-so did to me or the oppression I may feel um, mm -hmm. inappropriately. It, mm -hmm. So it could be, and then you, on the sports performance field or mm. on the ice, Let's talk about some of this stuff. My son's name is Shane. Like, we'll, we'll have discussions before the game. We'll talk about imagery and what he sees and how he's going to track the puck that night. So I'm like, tell me the story. Like, what do you see? Where are your guys? Where's the defense? How are you coaching them? If you, if you see something out of place or some, some, somebody lingering by the net, how are you going to clear up your crease? So we have these conversations. And again, all on these models. I used Ooh. the term eudaimonia before. And eudaimonia is, um, has been now in the literature, and it's something that's kind of been transpiring for the last 15 years or so, where somebody would say happiness. Uh, you know, happiness and joy are like these things that people aspire to intrinsically for no other reason of just to have it. Mm -hmm. I want to be happy. Why? Who doesn't want to be happy? You know? Yeah, and you can even think of it like on a, a warped mentality where... What movie, what show was that that I was watching? What's the show with uh, Jason Bateman on, on Netflix? No, I can't think of it right now. But there's a hitman on that show. And every time he comes in, right, that's his job. And he actually is thriving doing it. And I remember thinking this to myself, like, he's happy, even though it's <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Like, this job makes him happy. Now, the eudaimonic well-being model is even beyond happiness. It's like this ability to flourish. You know, along the lines of what we see with a flow state, but at the same time is where your virtues are fulfilled through the challenges that you meet each day. And those challenges are just enough. They're not here because here would be boredom. They're not too much because here's anxiety. It's just enough here to keep you engaged towards progression, kind of like program design. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, dose appropriate, if you will. And at the end of it, 
there is a level of fulfillment. You know, you think about the, the prefix you, mm-hmm. which is very different than dis. You have you stress, you have distress. Yeah. This is almost like chronic poor habits, if you will, where you stress is I just created this modality that is, you know, illuminating people's interest. That's used. It's, it's stressful, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's still some type of stimuli on your human organism, but there's a positive response and it's dose appropriate. And the literature would indicate that HRV, positive response to HRV is associated with eustress and negatively associated with distress. So the eudaimonic well-being is finding this level of happiness. So meaning-making, eudaimonia, and sustainable relationships in a virtual space. And for that to happen, there's four, I like to decide, it's like you have the orientation of the virtual arena. Why? Why are we doing this? Well, because Mm -hmm. I don't want to miss my training. It kind of reduces any type of cancellations. I'm traveling. I can still do it. Then you have your behaviors. What are we coaching? Is it mobility? Is it strength? Is it maybe it's just a life coaching conversation going through dynamics of that? And then what are these experiences? How do you, in our session, guys, how do you describe meaning? What is meaningful about what we just accomplished or what you accomplished today? Because I'm here, but I'm just a I'm a pathfinder. I'm lighting the way for you. Mm-hmm. The fork of the road, though, you can take the easy way out, or you can go a little the, the way that's a little bit more challenging, but the reward you know is going to be much greater. Mm-hmm. Finally, what is the function? And that function is how are you doing, and how far can you take this to be even uh, a better representation of, this, of what you were today? So this model is very powerful, and uh, you know it is my intention to do some um, you know some some casework, some studies with a small cohort of like 12 people over the course of like six months to a year with questionnaires and maybe taking the psychological well-being scale questionnaire in addition to an interview process. So my journey now with form has synthesized my doctoral studies and my career. So I'm confident that, you know, we'll collect some really valuable data on what clients describe as meaningful in virtual coaching. Wow. Fascinating. You know, it seems like being able to kind of read that emotional intelligence, right? Being able to read what your what your clients feeling almost. Mm-hmm. And then being an excellent communicator is what's really going to take you a long way as a coach. It, that's the goal. And um, again, it's a trained behavior for the coach, right? Mm-hmm. I, I talked about organizational behavior management. Think of uh, in a corporation, what a company would do to prepare and develop their staff, whether it's individually or as a group. Mm-hmm. I mean, structurally, we do the same thing in the fitness industry. We have certifying bodies. We try mm-hmm. to set a standard uh, standard in an industry that you know is getting better, but there's not you know it's kind of loose. Yep. And then we learn those behaviors, those techniques, those methods that we now communicate to the client mm-hmm. through behavior analysis. And, and ha- what does that look like? That looks like intake, data collection, assessment, questionnaires. Then we use that assessment to then put a program together and we're getting immediate feedback in the session based upon the program. Is it just right? Do we amp it up? Do we take it down? So that feedback is critical to how we adapt the program and doing so 
the client reaches this level of fruition that my coach gets me. Yes. Like I'm, I'm performing because like you just said, Neil, he's, he's an active listener. I'm not just putting stuff out there. He hears what I'm saying. And as coaches, I think we need to ask feedback more often to our clients to say like, we've been doing this for six months now. We do follow-up assessments. So we know we are making progress. Um, or in the times that you're didn't that you're not in some months, we've kind of identified the reasons why, what contributed to some of the stagger of that month. But at the same time, please let me know. I need to hear feedback from you. Am I speaking your language? Am I meeting you where you are? Mm-hmm. I'm meeting your state of readiness with my delivery, with my my coaching language. The stuff have you have you guys read Nick's book? Uh, the language of coaching, Nick Winkleman's book yet? No, no. Uh, highly recommend it. It's very, you know, we've been, ex- I've been exposed to it. Some of my colleagues have been exposed to Nick for uh, several years, going back to seven, 2017. For those who haven't, there's a lot of content, but it is so, if you can digest it and go through it at your own pace, uh, I'm not just saying you, I'm saying you in general. Mm-hmm. Yep. It adds a skill to the coaching model that I think so many overlook who just see this as a way to kind of like maximize their time with session volume and dollars and cents with this is something that really needs to be put into professional and personal development because it, it, it helps you well beyond just the session time as well in client relationships. Well, I think that's the one thing that we kind of, a lot of trainers overlook is understanding mm. when you have that real emotional connection with clients it really it's it's it builds a long term foundation and not a dependency right I, oh, I think we want to differ that we're not talking about the client depends on you for everything but there's a valuable relationship not just on a physical standpoint because this person helps me move better helps me look better but there's that emotional bond that you go from being clients to being friends because you have that attachment yeah i'm curious what's your your take both of you at that that moment where, like you just said, Dennis, like has this become so? Ca- I care for them as a friend, mm-hmm. but the primary relationship is still a, a business. I'm curious how how do you guys nurture around that to to keep a, an appropriate balance? I, I don't even think about it. I guess you know, there's we're still paying for sessions, right? But we're mm-hmm. we're good friends, and I don't know. I never it, I never really think about. Because usually crossing those lines is, hey, you shouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I just, I've never cared. Mm-hmm. So it just, it just feels natural. And it's never, oh. it's, it hasn't cost me any clients and mm-hmm. it hasn't cost me any friendships. So that, yeah, that's I don't know. I haven't really. It's interesting. And it's but, not everyone, right? You, you don't, yeah. you don't make this connection with every single client, right? It's that's just right. like you don't make it that connection with every single person you meet. So, so there's the handful that you really make that that deeper connection. And mm-hmm. then so it's just I think it's just a good friendship. It's interesting to see when you cross that border, it's interesting because clients are willing to talk to you about things that I don't think they would have talked to you about if just a professional setting. Yes. And I don't think it's a bad thing. So it I think it's up to the individual trait coach or trainer to decide in their realm whether it's appropriate or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know some trainers that are coaches that it's just business. 
They don't want to <clears throat> go beyond that, and that that suits them. That fits their spectrum. I see where they're coming from in, in regards to that. But at the same time, for me personally, I need my clients to understand that I give a shit. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's the big thing. And, and really, when you go to that point, because you can, here's the other thing too, is as a coach or a trainer, you also can't care more than the person cares about themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and that is a tough situation also. So, yeah, I think it's understanding how to kind of maybe keep that balance, maybe even not on, maybe like Neil said, you don't even think about it type of thing. Yeah. The one thing that I do think about, though, is whatever maybe stressors I have in my life or anything that's Mm. going on outside, I don't bring that into the session. Yeah. So because they're there, they're there to talk about themselves. You know, you're there to listen so if I have issues or problems, if they ask me a question, you know, hey, I'll tell them, hey, this is what's going on. But we're not there to talk about me. Mm-hmm. It's about them. You know, this is, uh, I, and I asked, I posed the question because I feel like you guys feel about it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, it's not a black or white thing. And there's been times, you know, like you just mentioned, where I've thought to myself, all right, we're friends. I, sh- I should feel comfortable to talk. Yes, I'm here for them. but if. And this is sometimes where I think to myself, maybe it's not a friendship in the true sense that I think it is. I'm very fond and we're close where there's this connection. But if that's the case, then I'm just as open in that situation. And then the, the business is compromised a little bit. Um, but I, I, I just think it's a, a fascinating thing to think about. And I think it's powerful that you said, I don't really think about it because I think that's the confidence in your coaching where it innately feels right. But yet you are able to keep a standard of professionalism without crossing that. And I think that goes a long way with, again, the meaningful experiences that the client describes rather that, let's face it, if somebody isn't human first, they're not going to move well, right? Yeah, no. Yeah, exactly. And they need to know that the nurturing of their being human, it starts with you or us as the coach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that, I mean... And there you go. That enhances their performance that particular day, that week, that month, Mm -hmm. years. Yeah, you brought up the whole distress and eustress thing, right? And if if you're creating this comfortable environment for them, then that eustress level raises. So then their HRV is higher, right? So then their session's better, they recover better. It's just a, it's an overall good thing. Yes, it is. How many times like somebody showed up not feeling great or a little depressed and they leave like feeling much better and you know, you just got all these emotions to come out and ex- and expressed through movement. Mm-hmm. It's just a wonderful thing to to watch. Yeah, and at the same time, you know, we've talked about it several times on the show where somebody comes in all, you know, just let's get them down regulated. Let's yes. get them back to a calmer state. So it, it's kind of it's going counterproductive to the old adage of. You know, I need to beat the crap out of something. I need to just do some thrashing on my body where now we're understanding, no, we just want to kind of downregulate you. Let's calm you down. So that way, when you get home, you're going to be in a much better state, not just psychologically, but physically also. Your body's going to react appropriately. So I love when that happens, when a client comes in and they're all just, uh, you know, by the time the session is done, they I feel much better. I feel great. Cool. Mission accomplished, right? That's what we were after. And that changed just for that session. 
because yes. you came in. It doesn't mean every session is going to be like that, but for that session, you came in, you were on tilt. I'm not going to put you more on tilt. I'm going to bring you back down to where you need to be. It's funny because I think what, as experienced coaches, remember coach, I, before I corrected myself, because I used to be a trainer years ago. Mm-hmm. And I found that as you mature as a fitness professional and, and movement specialist and the psychological component that goes along with all that, coaching is quite simply of taking a person of significance from where they are to where they want to be mm-hmm. safely, efficiently, and effectively. It doesn't have to be this guy being held up by, but it, even if it is, I, a coach is held up by a group of men. Why? Because he was able to tap into their emotion. Mm, You know, trainer, I have this vision in my head of like a guy at a rodeo with a whip and he's getting an animal to perform something. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. With no emotional connection. I just think you pat him on the ass and he's done. So like, these are the things that kind of are very powerful and impactful in coaching clients. Fantastic, man. So, I mean, you got your new job with Form, and so we're looking forward to seeing when is. I mean, check out the website, I assume, to see what it's all about, what the platform's all about. Yep. Yeah. This is Form Life. Uh, is also the Instagram handle. Right now, uh, we have a studio that's available for on-demand content. We have a partnership with Barry's Bootcamp as well, mm-hmm. and then uh, at the cusp of the new year, maybe around the, the first quarter, the latest, uh, hopefully, we'll be coming out with the studio, studio lift rather, which has adjustable arms and cable resistance. It's just an extraordinary piece of equipment. It's, you know, it looks great on the wall. It's, it has this like panoramic camera that will follow you around. And it's, oh. it's much, it's, it's 43 inches. So it's, it's structurally, the screen is much larger than like some of the competitors. Yeah. So looking for nice. It, um, you know, we are looking for anybody looking for a virtual coaching opportunity. You can go to the website and log in there for a virtual one-on-one coaching. Very pleased to be part of a team that has put together a robust onboarding curriculum of education for both brand content, brand awareness, and some of our presenters, which are industry-renowned coaches uh, that have really put something really unique together for, for the benefit of, of our industry. So for the on-demand stuff, are there, are there different categories as far as what type of session you can take? Like whether, Hey, this is for strength. This is kind of a all around session where you're getting a little bit of strength mobility. Yeah. Can you just go get a mobility session? No, we have, uh, so there's different domains. We have a bar. There's like a menu for bar classes. There's a menu for strength. There's dance, there's yoga, there's Pilates. And then uh, there's, there's a, like a, a mindset uh, with some a meditation, guiding, guiding meditation and oh, instructors, oh, cool. um, you know, it's, it's, it's a video. Very nice. Fantastic. Yeah. And for uh, social, as far as social media, where can people get a hold of you if they want to reach out to you or follow you? Thank you. Um, it's at M Ryan well coach. So first, first initial last name, well coach. Fantastic. Well, coach, it was a pleasure having you on, man. Great to talk to you as always. Love chatting with you. And as always, thank you for your support with what we do. We appreciate it. I know you've helped us out tremendously. So very much. We appreciate that. Thank you. I use it with my clients. I I put it on their uh, order list when we start a virtual program now. And uh, the physical therapy office out here in Long Island, who did both my shoulders and both my hips, um, 
they now have it in-house there and uh, are using it with their, with their patients. So and anytime I can speak of it, uh, guys, please know that uh, it has my endorsement. Thank awesome. you very Appreciate much. Appreciate that. What's one of the, what's the uh, consensus favorite move from most of your clients? Do uh, they have one that they generally like? You know what? Believe it or not, as subtle as it may seem, they love the way Captain Morgan kind of lights up the hip and core and oh, uh, deduction, a deduction of the glute. Um, I have a gentleman with Parkinson's disease who, you know, in, through a virtual component, uh, he we do bone arrow. We do. Mm-hmm. He went from unable to maintain balance on one foot to now doing a, a really nice Captain Morgan. Uh, and, you know, it's great to see this neurological adaptation that's going on with him. And, and it's, believe it or not, and it almost sounds counterintuitive, that irradiation is actually helping his rigidity. Mm. Yeah. You know, so as we were talking about mobility before, like become yeah. more stable so that when that tones down a little bit, the mobility kind of is right. and he loves the slap shot. Uh, so we're getting some thoracic openings yeah. for him to mobility to see a senior guy who was challenged um, not only with his chronological age, but uh, something chronic, you know, disease of the mind starting to set in. Mm. It's been wonderful to, and I'm also proud to tell you that uh, another gentleman who is 71, we've been using the stick now for well over two years. When I met him, he was contemplating hip replacement surgery and he is yet to go. So we're doing a lot of good stuff with that. No, it's awesome. Fantastic. Thank (laughs) you very much, man. Appreciate you, brother. Well, we'll hopefully have you down on, on the podcast again down the road, especially once form gets really cranking. Yeah. So, uh, and hopefully we'll get together soon someday in person again sometime <laughs> down, the road, <laughs> down the road. Game. Yeah. Well, I, and tell your son he looks great in that. Uh, I, you know, when you post those videos, I do check him out. He, uh, his, east, his lateral movement looks really good. So he's, uh, he's looking pretty sharp in that, man. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. And to uh, all the listeners out there, thank you for listening. And until next episode, be good to each other. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button. And whatever platform you're on, either Apple, iTunes, or Spotify, please, if you could leave a review, we'd appreciate that. If you have any questions that we can answer for you, be sure to leave those in the comments also. If you're looking for more information on our education, our products, please go to www.stickmobility.com. And also hit that subscribe button to that YouTube channel. And don't forget our live Instagram classes three times a week. If you want to join in, grab your sticks and hit that 45-minute class. Yes.